0: Hi, I'm Brian Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Today, I'm talking to Libby about nerve compression, interstitial cystitis, cystitis, there's so many T's in those words, hormone imbalances, and bipolar disorder. We also talk about diagnostic errors and the difference between drug addiction and drug dependence. Libby does her own advocacy work on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube as the intuitive advocate, so you might have seen her before. This conversation turned out to be super relevant to my own health, since I'm also trying to figure out what role my bulging discs and cervical stenosis might be playing in my overall health. And as you'll hear, Libby is facing some of those same questions. I want to add a quick content note to this episode and let you know that Libby talks about suicidal ideation as well as addiction and recovery in this episode, but they aren't the main theme or the main story. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. Okay, well, why don't we start at the beginning? So I like to ask people if they were healthy as a kid. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I'm like, where is the beginning? Yeah,
0: yeah. So how was your health when you were little or when you were growing up?
1: Um... It was never good. It was never, I never had good health mm-hmm. ever. Like, my health was always, I always had stomach problems. I always had digestive issues. Um, I, I just always remember growing up as a child and I always had stomach pain. Mm-hmm. I always really nauseous. I always felt really, um, just, I never wanted to, it's not that I never wanted to eat. I just always felt sick after I ate. Mm-hmm. And I always had really bad stomach pains, like mm-hmm. all the time. And my my mom, I remember my mom and my dad always thinking that I just didn't want to eat mm-hmm. and that I wanted something else. Yeah. Um, I was at the doctor. I was at Kaiser. We used to go on to Kaiser. I don't know if you have a Kaiser where you're at, but um, we have Kaiser Permanente here and they're very, it's like a chain hospital.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to live in California, so I did previously yeah, have Kaiser. Yeah.
1: So I'm not fond of Kaiser.
0: I wasn't either. <laughs>
1: And, um, um, and as a child, I was at Kaiser a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. They used to have paper, um, you know, pa- uh, paper records. Yeah. My was like this thick. Yeah. It was, like... really, it was like four inches thick. Yeah. And, um, and so I was on antibiotics all the time. I remember drinking the pink, which is amoxicillin, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or penicillin, basically. And I remember drinking that stuff constantly, like water. Yeah. Um, tastes really good <laughs> and, um, and I remember drinking that all the time I didn't know what it was doing to my system until sure until the last few years when I started getting really involved in um, my health and in improving my health mm-hmm. um, but as a child I never I never felt well I had really bad allergies I had very severe allergies um, I developed what's called um, asthma like an asthmatic, um, I had asthma induced from allergies. I don't okay. know if called, but I, I had asthma because I had such severe allergies. And so I had, on three separate occasions, I had asthma attacks that almost killed me because of the allergies that I had that were so severe. I used to get allergy shots um, as a child. I don't think they do them that often anymore. Yeah, I don't but know. back in the 80s, they did mm-hmm. a lot. And, um, and I used to get allergy shots, four shots, um, two in each arm every week. Wow. For ye- yeah, years.
0: And did they help, and, to your knowledge? Was it helpful or was it just I, a thing? I
1: didn't feel like it did. I felt like it was just torture. Um, eventually, and that started around the age of, I want to say, like, maybe seven or eight years old something like that, and I eventually quit on my own. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, Around the age of, like, 14 or 15, I was like, I'm done. I'm not doing it. This has been seven or eight years I'm done doing
2: this.
1: (laughs) Um, And so that was basically what my health was like. I had a lot of issues with constipation, um, really, really, really bad. Um, I remember the doctor telling my mom that I needed to take Metamucil for the rest of my life. Yeah. she should be on this for the rest of her life. Yeah, fiber, fiber, fiber. Yeah, yeah, yeah forever. And um, and then, really, part of my story is that um, I um, I'm in I'm in recovery right now. I've been in, in um, I'm very open, like I mentioned to you. And so I've been I'm in an Alcoholics Anonymous. I got sober in uh, July first of two thousand and nine. Okay. So part of my story is that I graduated and decided to start doing a lot of heavy drinking and drugs when I was around the age of 16 and um, I mean I drank earlier than that but I started really doing it heavily when I was about 16, 17 and and I stopped when I was um, 28 I believe I was and um, yeah I was 28 years old when I stopped and so in between all of those years health wise what happened for me is it completely destroyed my immune system Mm -hmm. on top of this severe um, you know, use of antibiotics because right. for years I was using tons of antibiotics for any ailment that I had. I would go into the doctor's office. My mom would take me to the doctor's and it would be, here's the pink stuff.
0: Yeah, of here's course.
1: Drink the pink stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, Eventually, what ended up happening was at around. Um, I'm just thinking of like the main medical stuff that happened to me, so I can get to the good stuff here.
0: Yeah, it's hard to remember when you have lived it all, and obviously, whatever's uh, happening right now will feel like the biggest thing. And you're like, I'm, oh, other stuff happened.
1: Once I got diagnosed with um, with interstitial cystitis, which is what I got diagnosed with um, last year,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I created a log, mm-hmm. started to create this. This is my notepad. Yeah. This is my blog. And, um, and I went back into my history and yeah. started to figure stuff out and get my medical records and all sorts of stuff like that to try to unravel this, like, mystery of what this illness is because there's so little known about it. And so um, what I ended up doing – so what ended up happening for me was in um, 2008, mm-hmm. so I married my first husband and stuff. We ended up getting divorced later on. But um, – I had a few bladder infections, um, nothing chronic or anything like that. Um, I've had ovarian cysts. I've had some of those, and those are ruptured. That's extremely painful. Um, But I really didn't have anything major. I had a hernia when I was seven, seven or eight years old. Okay, That was very bizarre. Yeah bizarre thing to have happen I remember the doctors at Kaiser were mystified as to how a girl had it and how a little girl ended up with a hernia Um, and I remember them asking my my dad um, when he he was he rushed me to the emergency room one morning because I woke up just screaming in pain I couldn't move and they did emergency surgery and they asked my dad like is she lifting really heavy things is she moving stuff like how did she have hernia (laughs) Um, so that happened. Um, so that that caused right. So later on in the future, now I found out that caused some scar tissue in my in my abdomen that Man. I had. That so mm-hmm. was a little, you know. So um, so I So I had I have my two. I have three kids. So my I know I'm skipping around a lot. So that's <laughs> okay. My oldest daughter is 16. My middle daughter's 14, and I have a son who's just about to be two years old. They were okay. all. Um, via cesarean section. Okay, my oldest was an emergency cesarean section. I was in labor for almost two days with her. Um, now that all causes abdominal scar tissue as well,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is a good little side note too. And um, but I had something happen to me in 2008 where um, I had no idea what the ramifications at the time was going to be to my health. It was huge, actually. I had a massive sinus infection, and it lasted for a year and a half.
0: And so, what first? Because it sounds like 2008 is like a noteworthy year for you. So I just want to say, so 2008, you mentioned you'd had some bladder infections, didn't seem related, not thinking about them, and then you get a bunker sinus, sinus infection, and this is after your first two kids are born, right? I'm this just is trying um, to do the math.
1: This is after my first two kids were born, yes.
0: Okay. So then you get a sinus infection for a year and a half. And um, so what was that like in terms of what were the uh, main symptoms, since they can present a little bit differently for different people?
1: I had severe pressure in my face. Mm -hmm. Um, I had constant congestion, runny nose, um, stuffy nose, because I had both. It would switch around. Um, The pressure in my face and in my head was extreme. I had, um, I mean, you talk about sinus headaches, I, it was, it hurt to just lift my head off the pillow.
2: Mm -hmm. It hurt
1: to walk, just to, just to be in in a um, standing position was excruciatingly painful. Yeah. Blinking was really, really painful. Yeah.
0: Just like this whole face area, right?
1: (laughs) in your face here, and you have sinus cavities back inside of your head over here above your ears. Mm A lot of people don't know about those sinus cavities. I forget the name of them, but they're back over here above your ears, and there's cavities in your forehead, and then, of course, the maxillary cavities in your face, right? Um, And so that infection lasted. It was a reoccurring infection, so it would go away, and it would come back. It would go away, and it would come back, and they treated me for a year and a half with antibiotics and steroids, prednisone, and um, and so it's it's worthy to say that during that time, I was still heavily drinking and and using drugs. and um, and so the antibiotics never really had a chance to work in my system. Eventually, what ended up happening was in May of two thousand and nine, I had to actually be hospitalized with um, and have uh, IV antibiotics and steroids um used to reduce the inflammation in my sinus cavities and to kill the infection. Enough so that they could actually do my first sinus surgery um, to to even have that happen. Mm-hmm. I had to be hospitalized for three days and then I was hospitalized and then I stayed in the hospital for two days post surgery.
0: okay.
1: That's ridiculous because not very many people have to be hospitalized for sinus surgery.
0: right right and you yeah. don't necessarily think of a sinus infection as something that will lead to hospitalization but of course I, I, I think
1: <laughs> meningitis mm-hmm. It was ridiculous. It was really, really bad. And so I had my first sinus surgery in May of 2009. I had my second sinus surgery in December of that year because the infection actually came back.
0: Okay, yeah. And this is in yeah. that year and a half window that you gave?
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so the infection started back in around September, and it wouldn't go away again. And so the doctor decided to do a second in, um, surgery in uh, December of that year. Mm-hmm. So then, I started to feel a little bit better. Um, meanwhile, during that time, um, I got sober, mm-hmm. and um, and so life started to get a little bit better. I started to feel a little bit better, um, you know, symptom wise. I just started to feel a little bit healthier again, mm-hmm. and um, and then around um, around. Oh, so then I almost forgot to mention this. So I had LASIK, PRK LASIK surgery um, in 2005. Okay. And I don't remember the month, but it was in 2005 because I was severely nearsighted, Mm -hmm. very severely nearsighted. And um, and so I had PRK LASIK surgery in 2005. Um, In 2009, in July... Um, just a few, a little while after I got sober, I was in a really massive car accident. Okay. And, um, and that car accident was, it was really, really massive. Um, and, uh, and so I'm starting to wonder quite possibly if that car accident did damage to my spine that I never knew about because I never had imaging done. So okay. put that little side piece over to the side, over here. Gotcha. Like physical okay.
0: trauma to your body that- Right. didn't appear to need like um invasive care at that time
1: nobody ever uh, suggested imaging to be done to my spine or anything from that car accident i was hit head on by an suv and i was in a ford focus mm-hmm. and I was deployed and the chemicals in the airbag actually damaged my corneas in my eyes yeah. and i had an eye patch on my left eye for um like six weeks i was like a pirate yeah <laughs> and um and so that happened um i had a grand mal seizure i think they're called mm-hmm. um about two months prior to that due to a benzo withdrawal induced seizure okay What that was called so, so i had whiplash happen because of that
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's also a little side piece the spine is really 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 important yeah really important yeah Damage to the spine and the neck is, is a really serious thing. It can cause really serious problems in your body.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I've been doing research the last couple of days about it after my um, imaging test, after the EMG.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So all of those things happened many years ago, right? Nine yeah. years ago. Yeah. And I never thought anything about it. And I never really had any imaging done to my spine up until about um, a couple of years ago. Um, about five years ago, I started to have a lot of pain in my neck. okay. And um, and then and so-
0: can I pause for a second to just I just wanna for timeline. So basically, so two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine, a lot happened, basically, which we definitely covered. Um, right and, and you said two thousand and nine was the year that you started recovery. And so probably your relationship with your body it was changing a lot anyway, yeah. while all this was happening. And then, about five years go by that are kind of not okay. with nothing specific to to remark upon. Like nothing's changing. Nothing's making nothing you worry.
1: Like very um, blaring that I should yeah. like pay attention to.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, until about... I don't know. Actually, it was probably less than five years because 2009, I want to say actually maybe two years later, 2011, I started to notice that my eyes, it started with my eyes. Okay. I started to, um, I started noticing changes in my eyes and my vision. And that my vision at night started to, um, um, to change and that I needed to wear glasses or something at night to see. My night vision started to just not be very well. (laughs) I couldn't see very well at night. So and what ended up happening basically was that I ended up being diagnosed in 2018 with keratocytosis. Okay. And um, keratocytosis is when your corneas um, basically are not, the the shape of the cornea starts to change. And it starts to change very drastically over a very short period of time. Some people are born with it um sometimes it develops later on in life from eye trauma from trauma to the eye gotcha right which happened to me in the car accident Mm -hmm. just never put it together until or it could have also happened from the lasik surgery that i had done many many years prior as well
0: right and it's impossible to know of course
1: no doctor no ophthalmologist can tell me for sure this is what caused this yeah Guessing now as to it could have been the LASIK surgery and it could have also been the car accident. But now I have keratoconus in my eyes, so I actually have to wear very, very specific, very expensive contacts in order to see. Because with glasses, I can't see very well at all. Huh. I would have to wear. Um, I just can't see very well with glasses. They, I have to
0: wear. They don't track specific. well with your pupils, probably. Yeah. Mm-mm.
1: No, not at all. So I have to wear really specific contacts in order to see. Um, so there's that. Okay. And, and that all has to also do with the nerves from your spine into your brain, right? Mm-hmm. Into the nerve and stuff. And so, um, which might have to do with the car accident that I was in. Right. Yeah. Big shrug. <laughs> yeah. And so, so there's that. Um, but I was diagnosed with that last year, um, and then um, I got diagnosed with um, with interstitial cystitis on October 31st of last year of
2: 2018.
1: Okay. So the bizarre thing with that is that, um, so I'm going to give you time frames. Okay, that's
0: good. Yeah, tell me how we got there.
1: Okay. So one of the first things that happened was that in... So my son was born on May 22nd of 2017. Okay. Okay. On about four... He was about five months old or so when I started to notice that I felt really different. I just felt really, really, really different.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I felt like uh, my libido was gone. My, um, my energy was gone. My... Um, I even was I even felt like really annoyed when my daughters or my husband would like hug me or touch me. I just it was it was very strange symptoms. I couldn't orgasm Mm
0: -hmm. at all, Mm -hmm.
1: and so I finally insisted that my OBGYN do a hormone panel. Mm -hmm. And a hormone panel, and my testosterone level was at the low side of normal. Okay. normal but it was on the low side of normal so he decided my estrogen level was looked a little bit strange too it was also normal range but on the low side of normal
0: also low estrogen okay
1: still in the normal range though so sure. a lot of doctors won't treat you because in in the normal range right.
0: right lab ranges are i feel like we could have a whole other long conversation about lab ranges and functional oh, lab ranges but our I
1: ranges you. are the way that they're created is completely ridiculous. It's, yeah. People only knew how ranges are created. It's totally ridiculous.
0: And how different they are from lab to lab. I feel like that's one of okay. the things. When you when you find that out, you're like, oh, I thought that this was a medical guideline. Like, no, it's not a medical guideline. It's just the lab saying what yep. is normal in their own results. Anyway, it matters a lot for stuff like hormones, which can make a huge difference. Um, really I, huge difference. And then I also had uh, one more question before you tell me more of this so you mentioned specifically like not liking being hugged by you said your daughter or your partner and I feel like that yeah that one thing people talk about a lot after having kids like being touched out had you experienced parts of that after your other two kids or did it all feel new no okay
1: I never experienced anything like that before. No, it was really bizarre, and it was really actually kind of scary. Yeah, like, I, like drastic. Yeah, like it was so not me at all mm-hmm. that I knew, I knew something was seriously wrong. I yeah.
0: knew something
1: was seriously wrong. Yeah. And so, um, so he did the hormone panel. So he ended up putting me on a testosterone cream. Okay. Okay, I use a testosterone cream. You rub it in your thigh every day. Right? I did that every day from April 25th of 2018 um, until approximately um, June of, um, I picked it up, oh no, from um, the previous year, from from 2017, from probably about, I think it was like, he was about five months old, so figure May, June, July, August, September, October, so probably from around October of 2017 until about um, June of um, 2018. So like
0: nine months, I think that is, oh. quite a while.
1: Okay. Now, this is where it starts to get bizarre, okay. And on June 26th, I went to the urgent care, here, I'll go, I'll, I'll go exactly according to the time frame, so that maybe it'll make it easier for you. Okay. Okay, let me look at this really quick. On June 21st of 2018, I went to a concert with my oldest daughter. Okay. Okay. Um, a, we were in the mosh pit, and um, well, it turned into a mosh pit. <laughs> yeah. A lady, a human being, was got thrown, and she landed um, on top of my head. Like okay. Like the top of my head. Like
0: flat. So probably compressed your spine a little bit if there's a weight. Okay. Ugh. That gives me the heebie-jeebies. It
1: was extremely painful. Yeah. It, was, it, it stunned me completely. Yeah. Like I was there one minute and the next protecting my daughter because I knew what the situation was there. Yeah. Um, the next minute I just felt excruciating pain in my spine and my neck. In my back, and um, and I heard something pop and crack.
0: That's never good.
1: No. And I and I look down. I, you know, my eyes were closed. I almost feel like I may have blacked out for a few seconds. And I look down. And I see a woman on the ground, and I realized she fell on my head. Mm-hmm. And everybody was is like, "Ma'am, are you okay?" Because they're all a bunch of young kids. Yeah. And and so that was June twenty first. June 26, five days later, I'm at the urgent care complaining of bladder symptoms.
0: OK, sure. But urgency
1: and frequency and pain from my lower back to my bladder, like radiating pain. OK. And it's... There's, there's blood in my urine that they can't figure out where it came from. They send me to do a CT scan. Everything is normal in my CT scan, except that there's a cyst in my liver, which I still am not sure how the heck that got there. Later on, the second CT scan shows that my liver's enlarged. I'm still trying to figure out what the heck that's about.
0: Yeah, can I pause you for one more second? I just realized I didn't ask. So you had, you had taken testosterone for about nine months leading up to that. So before the bladder symptoms start, before the concert injury, um, did you notice a difference with the steroid, th- not steroid, sorry, hormone therapy? <laughs> yeah. Yes, notice a difference.
1: Huge difference within about, I want to say, a month or so. I noticed a huge, huge, huge difference. Mm-hmm. Like, like myself again.
0: Of all those I, things. Okay.
1: All the symptoms went away. I felt totally normal. Okay. Oh, there was another very big thing that I totally forgot to mention to you. I got diagnosed with idiopathic hypersomnia in August of last year as well.
0: Okay. So
1: familiar with that diagnosis? Yeah, so. I would say
0: okay. I don't think I've heard those words together, but I know what they both mean. So it sounds like you need to sleep a lot and they don't know why. <laughs> Basically. Yeah.
1: For me, um, I also have bipolar two disorder, which I also got diagnosed everything happened for me within the last four years.
0: Okay. Um, so you are
1: diagnosed with ketosis, bipolar two disorder, and idiopathic hypersomnia and interstitial cystitis always within the last four years.
0: Yeah, which is like, gosh, I mean, everything is frustrating. Some of them, it sounds like, had just, like, they had just onset at that time. So especially, say, with your eyes, it's not like you were living with this condition for a long time undiagnosed. Yeah. It had kind of happened. For something like um, getting a bipolar di- diagnosis, did it, when you, were you seeking um, mental health care specifically? Or did that kind of come about? <laughs>
1: I had a complete nervous breakdown on, um, a mental breakdown just, I completely, it was really bad. Um, the day before my middle daughter's birthday in, um, it was July 6th of, um, 2014, 2014.
0: Okay. So, um, and this was around the five-year mark that we had kind of got to, and then I think I distracted For- us from, yeah, yeah, four-year mark. Yeah. So- in that middle space.
1: The next day, I, went to the, I went to my therapist and I talked to my therapist. He referred me to a psychiatrist who was able to talk to me and see me the very next day, actually. Mm-hmm. I, for an hour and a half, she actually saw me. I was in really bad shape and she um, took a full history of my past and my childhood and everything. And she diagnosed me for actually the second time with um, it was my second time being diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder. Okay. Um, I was diagnosed earlier that year, but with by a psychiatrist who talked to me for like twenty minutes, and I just felt like, what do, you, what can you possibly know in twenty minutes about right. me? To die? And he wanted to put me on lithium, and I was like, you're out of your mind. Yeah. But, um, she um, has me on different medications that are not that strong.
0: Mm-hmm. So, like that did not feel right for you.
1: The lithium and yeah. all. I was like, even if I do have bipolar two disorder, which is quite possible lithium is definitely not the medication that I need to be on absolutely mm-hmm. not. so um yeah so there was the bipolar 2 diagnosis in 2014 and then every other diagnosis that I got I, I was in 2018
0: right okay so then that brings us back so okay <laughs> I love timelines just because for me it's so interesting how these things end up stacking so so that diagnosis and then I think you just said this, but so did you start on a medication at that time for the bipolar or was that your treatment protocol? And that was, and, and did you find that helpful?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't stand the side effects at first in the beginning, but, um, I did those and, um, and then I only went off my meds once when I tried to get pregnant. Um, I, for some reason, my brain told me, oh, you should get off of your meds. So you have a clean body it was completely ridiculous it's so so relatable though like that, that is one that
0: idea is so strong in the culture it is it's
1: completely ridiculous i i have a completely different way of thinking about it now i um i got off my meds i got pregnant i proceeded to have a miscarriage six or seven weeks later which devastated me completely i was just beside myself, depressed, and still did not think that I needed to get back on my meds. Mm. Um, it wasn't until about maybe two or three months in, at post miscarriage, that I became so suicidally depressed, which is that's bipolar two. Yeah, and that's bipolar two classic. Right. That finally, with the encouragement of some of my friends and and my husband, um not so much my family, because they're not always the most supportive people, um, that um, I decided to get back, and my psychiatrist and my therapist, that I decided to get back on my meds, and I've never gone off of them, mm-hmm. because of the clear fact that now my understanding about mental illness is that our, for me, excuse for myself, I guess, my brain has an illness, just like my bo- my other organs can have an illness, and so I treat my brain with medicine, just like I would treat another organ of my body with medicine. Mm-hmm. And did you, fi- yeah. And did you find that having that
0: experience with what I'll call like physical health changed that once you started to, or did that kind of develop all at once? Like when you go, when, oh, so you're saying you
1: that, that different thinking.
0: Yeah. Did that kind of come was- about because of other stuff with your body or did that just come about over time? Does that make I- sense?
1: about because of the experience that I had being off of my medications yeah my meds for two or three months and Mm -hmm. experiencing the symptoms the depressed the suicidal depressive symptoms that I experienced and knowing at the same time that there was a tiny little piece of my brain um not even my brain my mind that was think that had thoughts that were like this isn't really you and what you actually want to do. You don't actually want to go run across the freeway.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: don't actually want to go stand in front of a train. Mm-hmm. You don't actually want to go, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you don't really want to go do these things. Um, this is your illness. Right. This is the part of your brain that doesn't have the correct chemicals
0: yeah.
1: to, um, how can I say it? This is the part of your brain that doesn't have the correct chemicals, in order to allow your mind, the mind part of your brain, if that makes sense, to function properly, so that you don't have these thoughts.
0: Yeah, and like life without these thoughts for you is possible with medication, exactly. and that's that's just a choice that you get to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so that,
1: that totally. About it I was like. This is my choice whether or not I decide to go back on these medications and use them so that I can stabilize myself so that I don't let my bipolar 2 diagnosis destroy my life.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so
1: don't end up self-medicating with drugs and alcohol again.
0: Right, right. that was
1: meant- part of why I used and how I ended up becoming an alcoholic and an addict mm-hmm. as well. yeah. Aside from just also environmental and um, social, you know, situations, you know, or sure. just all that kind of stuff too. So, um, and then once you're an alcoholic, you're just, you're an alcoholic kind of for life, so you can't really go backwards. So I was like, okay, I'm not, I mean, it is what it is now. I'm like, this is just, and there's some people that I guess can, you know, I've heard and I've done some research can treat their bipolar with like, you know, holistically. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I've chosen not to try that avenue right now.
0: Yeah. Maybe
1: try it later on in life. But as of right now, I'm I would not um just mess with that. So Yeah.
0: And that's that like I think because I think this is true for mental health and physical health is that there are so many corners of the internet that tell people like all you have to do is eat a clean diet and exercise and get off your meds and then everything will be perfect. But like and I, I'm also I believe that that works for some people, absolutely for some people. And like, but the the amount of guilt that it can create when it's not possible in your life to make those changes or whatever, like, or they just don't help, is yeah, it's no, so unnecessary.
1: A huge influx of people that are very pro. Um, health and clean eating and exercise and all of that, you know, to, in order to have like good health, which is fantastic. That's true. Mm -hmm. However, we have been given medications, I believe certain medications, right? In order to further, I don't know how, how do I word this? In order to further aid us in order to achieve optimal health. And so why would you take that, out of the equation if you're trying to actually achieve optimal health. Yeah. Why would you add that to the equation of a balanced diet, an exercise regimen, um, meditation, um, prayer maybe even, mm-hmm. you know, social aspect of it when it comes to having healthy friendships, you know, non-toxic relationships. Totally. I mean, huge dynamic that actually is involved in having a healthy body yeah. and a healthy Lifestyle, and so you you really have to take every single piece into the equation, and not just focus. People focus, I think, a lot on just one aspect instead of the whole everything. There's the whole picture that has to be looked at, and a lot of people just focused on one part of it mm-hmm. instead of the picture. Yeah. There's a whole picture. So a lot of people that have chronic pain and that are, you know, dealing with that, are focusing a lot on just one one aspect, which is their, you know, their immediate physical health, without the other aspects, which given is very difficult to focus on the social aspect of your health, because you have a chronic illness, and so how do you focus on the social aspect of your health? Yeah. Well, you can, it just takes some some practice. Yeah, it's hard. And then- but very 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 important to focus on the social aspect of your health because it has a lot to do with your well being. I mean, it's I force myself sometimes to get out of the house and go hang out with friends or something. It's really important to your well being. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so I do want to go back to the timeline, although I I think that was really important. So yeah. so back in the timeline, you were talking about so that now there's blood in your urine after. Yeah. Right. Um, so
1: I I blood in my urine the this first concert. Time. And that was five days later after the concert, right? So I had blood in my urine. I had the pain. I had frequency. I had urgency. I had all this stuff. They didn't know what was wrong with me. They had no idea if I was having a bladder infection, if I had a kidney infection, if I had no ovarian cyst rupture, like what was – they had no clue. Mm-hmm. They basically ended up sending me home with antibiotics <laughs> with um, – they wanted to give me prednisone, and I was like, absolutely not. Why would I take a prednisone pack? Like, for what reason do you have? Um, no. No. <laughs> And, um, and then they ordered a CT scan, right, which I went and did. Um, eventually, what ended up happening in June was it lasted about, I, mean, I want to say, like, two weeks or something, and it disappeared. Just disappeared completely. Just all of the bladder symptoms. Disappeared. Sure. And then it all came back at the end of September. Okay. September 17th, to be exact. <laughs> And on September 20th, I went into the urgent care again with all of the same problems. Okay. All the same symptoms. And they did the same thing. They sent me in to do um, a CT. Actually, no, on September 20th, they referred me to the emergency room. And I went to the emergency room from the urgent care and had all the tests done at the urgent care. They did a CT scan. They did... um, they did all that stuff, and I remember that day. They made me feel like I was a drug addict because I asked them for pain medication because I was in so much pain.
0: That's so.
1: That's awesome.
0: A ho- that's like a whole other horrible <laughs> thing to navigate, right? <laughs>
1: about that, right? Yeah. Okay, so then, um, so, oh, I can't wait to tell you about this. It's <laughs> fun. Okay, so, um, in I have to make like a video at some point and update my youtube channel and be like this is what's actually wrong thus far that i have finally figured out so on october 31st i i saw the first urologist that i've ever seen who diagnosed me after just speaking to me for i don't know half an hour with interstitial cystitis and had you heard of that before i had i had heard of painful bladder syndrome okay Um, My primary doctor told me back in June that she suspected that I might have painful bladder syndrome. Okay. So I went home being the medical researcher that I am and looked it up and read about painful bladder syndrome. Um, And I saw the words interstitial cystitis, but I never read specifically about interstitial cystitis. I read about painful bladder syndrome. Okay. With A little bit and not even too much because I just was like, I don't have this. This is ridiculous. Like, there's no way. This is like an incurable... Um, disease of the bladder, and just it's too kind of ridiculous. There's no way that I have this thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, I probably have like, because I had I had been told for a few years after having my children, I had heard the words um, like overactive bladder, mm-hmm. I heard the were at the doctor's office. I had heard the words um, incontinence a couple of times. They had um, given me Detrol LA a couple of times they prescribed me that I took it like once or twice I think for a short period of time and then I was like this isn't really doing very much or um and I just stopped taking it um and there was kind of a few things that I started to notice later on after my diagnosis um that I kind of started to piece together over my history like oh I guess maybe I kind of have had like some you know, and I called them bladder issues when, in reality, they had nothing to do with my bladder. I found out later, and I'll tell you in a minute. So, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very interesting story. So, um, okay, so he on October thirty first diagnosed me with interstitial cystitis. He did. Um, uh, he put me on uh, two medications. He put me on Urabil, um three times a day until teridine. Which are just um, anti spasmatic medications. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then he did a, a urine culture for bacteria that he felt was very rare to have. But he thought, let's just test you for this bacteria and see if it comes back. And I just was like, okay, whatever you think. I, I don't know what's happening here. So, whatever you think. Yeah. Okay. So, as it turns out, he um tested me for bacteria that are called mycoplasma and neuroplasma. those tests came back a few days later positive and actually, an, actually, a urine culture the urine cultures came back a couple weeks later positive for mycoplasma and neuroplasma. on november 2nd he did a cystoscopy and the cystoscopy showed what so what he told me was that it looked to him like I might have something called Hunter's ulcers in my bladder.
2: Okay. Based
1: on him telling me that, I went to go get a second opinion. What he actually put in the computer system, I found out months later, months later, months later being a few days ago.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. I found out that what he put in the computer system is that my bladder looks completely freaking effing normal. Okay. Because he told me, though, that it looked like I had Hunter's ulcers, and I didn't know what the hell that was. Yeah, so you Googled it. Use something called a hydrodistension surgery where they put saline in your bladder and they blow it up and it, they stretch it out in order to see if you really do have these Hunter's Ulcers and it's a very invasive surgery, I was like, uh, okay, and he says to me, my surgery scheduler is going to call you um, to schedule the surgery. I left his office and was like in tears because I remember the man saying to me, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Fortman, to tell you that you have interstitial cystitis, it's an incurable disease, it's very difficult to treat. But I can give you, and I just was crying, and I had my son in the stroller there. He was 18 months old, and I just sat there crying. And I go,es There's nothing you can do to help me. And he goes, well, I can give you a rescue installation today. And I go, What's that? And he said, I put medicine in your bladder through a catheter, and you have to hold it in your bladder for two hours. Now, at the time that I got into his office on October 31st, I was peeing every five to 10 minutes.
0: Yeah, was yeah. That- so that's every- the frequency urgency thing.
1: I'm like, how am I going to hold medicine in my bladder for two hours when I'm peeing every five to 10 minutes? I had to keep leaving his office to go use the restroom. It was ridiculous. Yeah. So on October 9th, I go meet with another doctor who's actually a very, very prominent doctor here in Los Angeles in Southern California. Um, so she's a researcher as well. So there's something called um, the MAP study. The MAP study for interstitial cystitis is the first um, s- study that is um, actually talking to the patients um, and sending them, you know, surveys and things like that to do. And it's the first study of its kind in the United States that's studying pelvic pain and um, interstitial cystitis, painful bladder syndrome. It's a really in-depth, multidisciplinary study. Okay. She's one of the researchers on that study. My second urologist.
0: Okay. Okay. And this is, like, immediately after, basically, almost a week after.
1: Basically a week later. Okay. I go in to see her, and she does a cystoscopy. She tells me my bladder looks completely normal. She proceeds to tell me that I need to continue to do the installations, the bladder installations. And she puts me on a series of six once a week. I proceed to do those because I don't know any better. And what and does I that entail again? That is putting a catheter into through your vagina, through your urethra, right, into your bladder, and they install a combination of different medications into your bladder, and you hold them in your bladder, the medications, okay. for its extended period for of time. two
0: hours, or, are... okay.
1: Some doctors will tell you 15 minutes, some doctors <laughs> tell you two hours. That's now, different. This- this is, the, this is the part that is really interesting, is that the AUA guidelines, the AUA is the American Neurological Association, according to the AUA guidelines, they state 15 minutes in their guidelines. Doctors will usually tell you two hours, three hours, an hour, half an hour.
0: Yeah. So all over the place. And of course, when frequent urination and urgency is one of
1: your problems, like,
0: that do would be you- extremely uncomfortable, even if you can
1: do it. Yeah. All right painful, very, very, extremely painful, extremely painful. Okay, so um, I have a series of tests done. I had a pelvic MRI, my first pelvic MRI done on December 8th. Um, I don't know that you want me to go through every single timeline, but because I have a lot of dates, I have like, a lot of dates. Um, I saw an allergist on December 3rd who did an allergy panel to check all my immune globins. Um, on December tenth, I saw a rheumatologist who ran more blood work. Mm-hmm. Um, on December thirteenth, I did some stuff for the map study. Um, I kept having mycoplasma and neuroplasma was repeatedly coming back, and I was repeatedly being treated for it with antibiotics. and did you still have uh, blood in your urine at this point? or was it mostly
0: <laughs> the yeah, sometimes, but the the urgency frequency pain thing was the main.
1: Now, as I was doing the bladder installations, every week that went by, I was getting worse. My pain was getting worse. I basically got to a point where I wasn't able to walk, I wasn't able to sit, I wasn't able to stand. I was basically stuck on my bed laying on a heating pad or an ice pack for the majority of my waking hours. Okay. Um, I couldn't really lay on my side, on my back. I just had to lay on my stomach, which is really bad for your lower back.
0: Okay. Yeah. It's like a weird, you can get into a weird spinal posture there.
1: Right. Right. Um, I um, eventually got sent to pain management um, because my my urologist, the second urologist, couldn't continue to prescribe me opiates because of all the fantastic opioids, you know, ridiculous Uh, going on
0: another rat's nest of complicated political junk
1: right um on december 19th this is wonderful on december 19th i had three mris done all at the same time
0: okay of different areas of the spine kind of
1: yes i had one of my neck Mm -hmm. i had one of my lower back my lumbar spine and i had one it's i think it's called a saddle mri of your pelvis okay now I went to see a third urologist and a fourth urologist and a fifth urologist as well.
0: Were these all in your network? Also, all were you able to get referrals within Kaiser?
1: No, th- no, this isn't with Kaiser. This is with oh. UCLA. Okay, right. This Kaiser is- was your
0: childhood <laughs> provider.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. This is these all these urologists are with UCLA and with Cedar Sinai.
0: Okay, and so they're all covered by your primary insurance, or as covered as they
1: can be. The third urologist that I went to go see was with um, uh, USC, and she was actually—I've been dying to say this to somebody. She—I wish I could tell you her name. I feel like I probably shouldn't say her name. She is one of one of the lead professors on the MAP study, and she never even touched me. She never examined me. She never took my blood pressure. Nothing. Mm-hmm. That was not work. Yeah. To pay for that out of pocket.
0: Yeah. And you're like, well, that was not helpful, but I guess now I know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And all she referred me to do was to continue, was to go back and continue to do the installations with my second doctor. Which
0: don't seem to be helping, but not much time has passed.
1: Right. And right. And they were making me significantly worse. Mm -hmm. Um, Around Thanksgiving time, I started to have numbness set in, where I started to go numb around my bladder area, my abdominal area, my pelvis. Um, my groin area, my inner thighs, my upper thighs, my lower back.
0: Okay, Um, so like radiating.
1: Radiating numbness. Eventually, as the months and the weeks progressed, the numbness by January started to spread to my left leg. January 4th, I was hospitalized with um, complete dead. My left leg went completely dead. It was just dead leg. But it was also very painful.
0: Okay, so like you weren't able to move it? And uh, all, or like you could drag it
1: around, mm-hmm. um, and, and mostly just, numb
0: to the touch, like, but painful,
1: it, you know, like tingly, like yeah. really, like kind of when a body part falls asleep. Yeah, I have learned
0: of... that that is called paresthesia.
1: Oh, is it? <laughs>
0: yeah, the I like
1: the name of that, it's...
0: paresthesia, it's a type of neuropathy. So, neuropathy, right, being like a nerve problem, and paresthesia, it seems, I think. It might be broader than this, but like pins and needles is given as one of the specific sensation right. examples. Yep. So I'm excited yep. when I do know the names of things.
1: Yeah, I know. Me too. Well, I learned where that came from on um, what I, I finally figured out what caused all of that on um, Thursday.
0: Yeah. Fine. So so then, are there any? Okay. So you had lots of spe- other specialists that weren't super helpful. Was there any other like big news <laughs> or things that you tried up until last week?
1: Yeah, the fourth urologist that I went to actually did some work, and he actually figured out that I had a hormone imbalance, again, and he put me on hormone replacement therapy for testosterone and estrogen. My testosterone level was so low that it was almost um, undetectable. My my DHT level, my testosterone level was extremely low. There's several different sex hormones, Right. right. Um, the endocrine system is like, has, I think, seven glands. Mm-hmm. And don't quote me, it's either seven or nine. But a lot. Um, Huh? But a lot. A lot, yeah. yeah. And um, for all of the hormones that are secreted into the body. But the sex hormones, right? There's testosterone, there's DHT, there's estrogen, progesterone, there's, you know, quite a few of those. And there's
0: um, just, est- as an aside, like, there's different forms too, right? Like, estrogen has at least three forms. Like, yep.
1: there's... Yes. So much more
0: complicated junk in there.
1: Yes. And doctors generally will only do a screening test when they test your hormones. They don't do a full hormone panel and check for all of the hormones. He did a full hormone panel and checked all my hormones. My DHT level was non-existent,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: which is a type of, of testosterone level. So he put me on, which can increase and cause pelvic pain. That, in and of itself, can ca- can be a cause of pelvic pain. Okay. Which very few urologists know about or will even draw blood to find and treat. Right. So he found that. He started to treat me on that. And he found out that I have a pelvic floor dysfunction. Okay. So he was the first urologist that said to me, you don't have interstitial cystitis. You have painful bladder syndrome, Maybe. And you have a pelvic floor dysfunction for sure, and you have a hormone imbalance. That's what's causing your symptoms. And I looked at him and I said to him, "There's no." F- I'm sorry, but he said to me, "I said him, there's no fucking way that I don't have interstitial cystitis." Yeah, like there's no way. He also doesn't believe that I.C. exists, though. So it's kind of like a you know, I don't know how you cannot believe that I.C. exists. Um, because there's some doctors that are like that but he was the only doctor that said that to me and as it turns out he's basically kind of right because I don't actually have I was completely misdiagnosed that's my story I was completely, completely misdiagnosed completely by several doctors several urologists and not just urologists prominent urologists who are researchers on an actual fucking on an actual- It's fine with me. a, A research study that's taking place in our country, one of the lead professors completely misdiagnosed me and completely overlooked the fact that I have complete spinal stenosis in several of my discs in my spine and that's what's causing my symptoms on top of... Yeah, and this a, is what you just learned, right? And hormone tests. Yeah, that's what I just figured out. That's, yes. what I just, that's my diagnosis. That's one of my diagnosis, mm-hmm. do- doses. Yeah. That's one. And so how did you get there? Like, who
0: ordered these most recent tests?
1: My, my neurologist. My neurologists ordered the, the the tests on December 18th. Oh.
0: On December
1: 20th was when all the MRIs supposedly came back normal is what I was told, and that I had a bulging disc between my C4 and my C5 along with muscle spasms. That's all my neurologist told me on December 20th. When I got my actual records back, back um, from my doctor's office on um, what was the day that I got my records back? was on Monday of this week, right? was when I found out that I actually have, hold on. My neurologist didn't tell me the truth either. He didn't tell me the full story either. Yeah. He just told me that I had a bulging disc between my C four and my C five. Which so is like
0: not he's super a- noteworthy. Big- yeah.
1: Every every a lot of people have bulging discs in their in their neck. That's not that big of a deal. No, my actual results show that I have a two millimeter two millimeter disc bulge between my L three. And I have facet, a facet bulge between my L4 and my L5 along with it. So my facet is completely fucked up. On top of the fact that I have a disc bulge between my at my L3 level, or between my L4 and my L5, I should say, I have a disc bulge between my L5 and my S1, and I have reversed, I might not say this, Lordosis.
0: Lurdosis yes i'm repeating it because i'm gonna have to google it later to make sure i spell it right for the transcript i, I don't care if it's pronounced right or not
1: I, so, so i'll repeat it so i have so basically what my problem is is that i have i have a bulge in my neck between my c4 and my c5 right okay that's i also have muscle spasms in my neck between in that disc bulge the mri also showed of my the lower lumbar mri Show that I have a 2 millimeter disc um, bulge at the L3 section. I have facet degeneration at the L4 and L5, and I have a disc bulge at the L5 and S1 okay. root. I have um, a reverse lordosis. So the curve of your lower back, mine's doing the opposite of okay. being you have, it's called lordosis, right? So the the curve of your back, it's supposed to curve a little bit, right? right like in, out, in, kind of. Like an S shape. If yeah. it curves too much, then it pushes your pelvis forward too much, which can cause problems to your bladder.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If it goes too far back and it's shaped like this, that can also cause a lot of problems in the way that you walk and the way that you stand, and that can also cause a lot of problems to your bladder, your intestines, your bowels, right? Mine is starting to shift this way. It's not like this. It's not shaped like an S, like mm-hmm. it's supposed to be. It's not straight, either. I don't have a straight back, a flat back. It's starting to go this way. OK, so it's like. It's starting to, it's starting to reverse itself.
0: So that would mean that your pelvis is like forced forward, kind of? Yeah. OK. OK, and so you, you just.
1: Oop. Oh. Sorry. Okay. I just had to cancel the call. Um, yeah, it means that, that my pelvis is starting to push forward. Now, this is the other thing that I started researching, is the nerves that are located at those junctures, mm-hmm. right? The nerve of my S1 is completely compressed. That's a nerve root. hmm And so... That's the nerve root. Yeah.
0: For, like, radiating
1: down. Right from you know what that causes when you have a compressed nerve right there? Tell me. It causes the numbness that I've been experiencing in my abdomen, in my lower back and in my left leg.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So when I was hospitalized January 4th, and they couldn't figure out what was causing my numbness, all they had to fucking do was look <laughs> at the MRI results. Yeah,
0: in your and- file
1: really look at them and actually read them and they would have seen, oh, this patient has um, a disc bulge at three separate areas in her spine, her neck, two points in her lumbar spine, Mm -hmm. along with the compressed nerve, because when he did the EMG test, what it showed is that I have a compressed nerve.
0: Okay, and so that's... Totally, docu- like that can be documented by itself.
1: Yes, that was okay. documented. The EMG test. The EMG yeah. showed that I have a compressed nerve. Mm-hmm. I have a mild acute L five radiculopathy. Okay. Compressed nerve on the left. Yeah. That's what the EMG showed.
0: Yeah, and so this is brand new information.
1: Obviously, That's information that I just received on Thursday and when I looked all of this up and googled everything and started researching everything I was so pissed off because I sat here and thought to myself not only did these fuckers completely misdiagnose me but they a a the second urologist completely put me through hell because she put me through bladder installations for no reason she would a she was treating a healthy bladder for what reason Mm mm-hmm she was putting medication into a healthy bladder that should have never been done to begin with.
0: And it's like probably just to say that something was done, right? Like...
1: Yeah, but all my medical records, when you go through my notes, my medical records, you can see that she logged that I was telling her that I was getting progressively worse. Right. So why why didn't she change the treatment?
0: Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Um gosh okay so i would be incredibly mad also i
1: um, i'm really upset that's why i've been talking to cedar sinai to i have an appointment a phone appointment to speak to the director the medical director at cedar sinai mm-hmm. right um, in a couple of weeks
0: yeah to be like hey but let like me tell me you know, what happened
1: because this is one of the other things that i want to mention that's really important is that there are in, there are ic painful bladder syndrome phenotypes Okay. Okay. Um, Dr. Christopher Payne is the one that created the IC painful bladder phenotypes. They're really important because what they do is categorize patients according to their symptoms and then also give them a treatment plan according to each individual person's symptoms. Mm-hmm. Because IC, what happens is that everybody presents a little bit differently from everybody else. So some patients have what's called hunter's ulcers in their bladders. right which Those... was what you were looking into before. Right, which I never had. Those patients have to have to have their ulcers cauterized. A lot of urologists will not cauterize the ulcers. They'll do the hydrodistension surgery, which is what you need to do to identify the hunter's ulcers. But they don't cauterize them at the same time that they do the hydrodescension surgery. Why? That's in AUA guidelines. To do both. That needs to be done. Yes, cauterize. So, urologists today aren't, A, they're not following the guidelines as the way that they were set, which they were created the last time in 2011. Mm -hmm. Some of them were amended in 2014. We're now in 2019. It's completely ridiculous that it's taken. This long. Is it also true, this might
0: just be because of what my social media is, is I see more common in women. Yeah, like a lot yes. more,
1: I think. Women suffer from interstitial cystitis on average about 80 to 85% more often than men do. Men, about 10 to 15% mm-hmm. have interstitial cystitis. And more often than not, when men are being diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, it's generally a pelvic floor dysfunction that they actually have not true, true interstitial cystitis. True interstitial cystitis is Hunter's ulcers in the bladder. Okay. Then there's four other phenotypes that are characterized as painful bladder syndrome or bladder pain syndrome. And those four phenotypes have, uh, there's there's four other phenotypes and those other four phenotypes, all, all five of those phenotypes need to be addressed um, and they need to be really added to the AUA guidelines so that the urologists are mandated to use those phenotypes when they diagnose their patients mm-hmm. that are coming to their offices because then patients like me who come in presenting right, with what looks to be bladder symptoms, aren't thrown into the umbrella of interstitial cystitis. Right. They actually need to be investigated so that they can be properly diagnosed. Yeah, which is
0: a huge problem, I feel like, across the board. With um, medicine, yeah, there's no investigation done. Well, and there's no um feedback cycle, right? So it's like, on the one hand, a lot of the time, and I hear people say this a lot. They're like, it took however many years for me to get diagnosed, but along the way, a lot of doctors who didn't know what was going on, I don't blame those individual doctors because, I mean, in your case with the study, that's a pretty specific situation, but a lot of the time, you'll have, like, a general practitioner who doesn't have the information, so they don't even know what specialist to send you to, and it's an opportunity for them to learn, definitely, but, like, it isn't necessarily fair to expect that they would already know, but we don't have a feedback system. So if you, you know, your first urologist or your second urologist, there, there's no built-in system where they will get flagged to know what actually ended up happening, and that's messed up.
1: Yeah, but however, what I can tell you is that in um, what country is it? Hold on, let me tell you what country it is um, in a second. There was a um, a meeting that they had the um, a whole bunch of uh, important AUA. There was a 2018 annual meeting in Florence, right? I think I think it's called the Earth Science System. I'm not I'm not exactly is the E S S I C. 2018 annual meeting in Florence, Italy. It was a D- November 29th to December 1st, and the um, this is what's incredible is in the Netherlands. Okay, in the Netherlands, right? This is what I found absolutely incredible when I started reading about this. Okay, was that there? There is an office there um, called the. Uh, What's the name of it? There's a clinic there. I can't find where I wrote the name of it, but there's a clinic there. Okay, and the way that they diagnose patients who might have interstitial cystitis is literally with a multidisciplinary team, team of doctors, and the team of doctors includes a pelvic floor physical therapist a gynecologist who makes an analysis of the hormonal situation for female patients, a dietitian who checks for allergies and bowel problems and gives dietary advice, the nurse can also perform a PTNS, do an installation, teach the patient to do an installation at home, and all of this is monitored really closely, and the clinic even can refer you to a sexologist, a psychologist, a neurologist, a pain center, a rheumatologist, and an immunologist. And that's all done at one, one center, <laughs> at the Netherlands, in the yeah. Netherlands. It's like the dream. If that can be done in the fucking Netherlands, why can't we do that in America? Yeah. Why? Yeah what's the reason that the AUA cannot mandate this to happen in America for interstitial cystitis it would be completely if we had that type of protocol right in place for interstitial cystitis along with the IC phenotypes that Dr. Payne has come has created
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they, they were guidelines yeah in the AUA The interstitial cystitis problem in this country would would be eradicated. It would be so different. It would be
0: gone. Yeah. There's so many components. Well, like just that list is great, but and it's it's true because I've Googled IC before and a lot of it is just like, well, stop drinking coffee. And you're like, Okay. And I or I asked on Twitter recently about that, just saying, Does anybody with IC has anybody with IC had success with the dietary recommendations, which is mostly just a low acid diet? Right. And, And not that this is a huge uh, study or anything, but nobody answered yes. Anybody that answered said no.
1: And I'm like, OK, well. it only works for the uh, 10% of the, You yeah. rarely does it work for anybody. And when it, I shouldn't say anybody, it usually works for the patients who have type 1 or type 2. Well, it makes type sense 5. if it's ulcers type two is bladder wall phenotype so Mm -hmm. if if you have type one or type two then yeah you're gonna have the diet sensitivity and diet restrictions if you have type one type three phenotype which is my phenotype that's the um, the pelvic floor generally is the problem with that the type three phenotype is called pelvic floor myofascial pain phenotype Mm -hmm. if you have that phenotype Diet sensitivities and diet restrictions does absolutely nothing for that phenotype. Yeah, if you
2: have
1: type four the prudential neuralgia, diet's not going to do anything for that. Do You have a prudential nerve problem. Yeah. What is your diet going to do for your prudential fucking nerve problem? Nothing. Type five is a central sensitization. You know how many people have central sensitization? Most people who have chronic pain have central sensitization, and they have no idea that they have central sensitization. They don't even know that central sensitization affects all five senses and that it can affect all five senses completely differently or that it can affect one of the senses and not the other four.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: have no idea. Literally, my neurologist, when he was doing the EMG test and it got to the point where he was doing the needle portion of the test – which I knew was coming, but I had no idea how painful it was going to be, I started yelling and screaming. Mm-hmm. I was yelling and screaming during the needle portion. And um, at one point, he tra- he's a neurologist. He, he treats me for hypersomnia. He turns to me and says to me, Libby, you need to keep it down. <laughs> I- keep it down? Why? What? You're like stabbing you're- me. You're scaring the other patients here. And I said, I don't give a shit you didn't tell me that this was going to be this fucking painful? And he goes, it shouldn't be that painful to you. And I said, I have central sensitization. Like, it is. My nervous system is fucked, Dr. Faisal. And you know this. Yeah. And he says to me, a neurologist, right? Who knows that I have a central nervous system disorder. Says to me, can you control it, please?
0: You're like, if I could, I would not be here. If I could just turn it off, then I wouldn't have a problem. Like,
1: Literally what I said to him. I go, what did you just say to me? If I could control my central nervous system, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. Like, I haven't been able to meditate this away yet. What? Like, what? And of course I can't control it. If you look at my MRIs, I have my nerve root is compressed, you idiot. I might have to have spinal surgery. That does
0: bring us to my next question, although I am still very mad with you right now, which is because this is so new, based on this information, do you know what's next? Or like, what are the things that you might try or what will make sense? Or is it too new to know?
1: The thing that I'm willing to try is acupuncture. Yeah. That's the first thing I'm willing to try is acupuncture. Cupping, acupuncture... Um, what else am I willing to try? Um, those are the first two things that i thought of that I'm willing to try. I've already done a cupping session earlier this week on Monday. Um, it helped a lot. It helped a lot. It helped for about three days. Wow. Actually, three or four days the cupping session helped for. It was a cupping massage. Okay. It was painful. Um, but it kind of was like a good pain. Yeah. He did my back and all the way down to my back, to my lower back. Mm-hmm. And so when you say it helped, what what improved? Pain. Just like across the board? Across the board, the pain. Mm-hmm. The pain, it helped so much. I was able to stand for longer periods of time. I was able to sit for longer periods of time. As it is right now, like I can't sit for a long period of time. I can't stand for a long period of time. As we've been talking, I've changed positions probably 10 times.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I know these interviews are long <laughs> yeah. for people. Um,
1: You see me moving around a lot probably because I have to keep moving positions. I have to keep switching. I can't stay in one position for a long period of time.
0: Yeah, totally. Okay, so that made a difference. And then you're going to look into acupuncture, which also totally helps some people.
1: This makes a a really big difference, which has been difficult for me to like – when I made the decision to start using opiates for pain, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it was after months. I mean, my symptoms started in September – and I started having pain, probably in October. I didn't start using the opiates until it took me like two and a half months. I want to say almost three months until I finally was like, I can't do this. I can't live like this. I can't live like this anymore. And I've just been really, really careful with it. And I've been really like I only take you know I only use anything when I have pain, yeah. like significant pain. And when I started using the medical marijuana, it was really hard for me to make that decision because that, for some reason, in my brain, I thought, like, that's totally drugs. Like, that's totally, if I'm using that, I'm on drugs, and I will have relapsed, and I'm not sober anymore. Yeah. And I talked to a few people to really, um, that are sober that also use medical marijuana that were like, what's the difference between using medical, like, marijuana for pain than using um, opiates? What's the difference? Mm Mm-hmm started thinking about it and I started doing a lot of research on cannabis and CBD and was amazed at what I was reading and what I was learning about cannabis for pain right and when I started reading about that alone I created a totally separate Instagram account just for medical marijuana because I was like this is completely people just don't aren't people are just ignorant. Yeah. They just don't know what they don't know. Yeah.
0: And it's, I mean, because other people, some people who I've talked to who talk about also like using opiate, opiates, opioids, anyway, painkillers who are worried, who are going, well, I'm like my own history or my own mental health. I'm concerned, like you say, about the line between maybe dependence, which is like painkillers make such a big difference for me that I am dependent on them to live a normal life, which right. isn't bad. It's just true no and it's like I'm I'm concerned about the line between dependence and addiction and I'm sure like all of the noise right now about the opioid crisis much make it so much harder um yeah. to navigate that but that's by itself that's so real the guilt of like oh I need medication and if you, and if I have a background of abusing substances and I'm very like that personal feeling that you're talking about between opioids and and marijuana <laughs>
1: there's a big difference between being dependent on a medication and being addicted to a medication mm-hmm. right diabetes patients this is the best example I've ever, yeah. ever heard diabetes patients are dependent on insulin
0: mm-hmm.
1: that doesn't mean that they are to stay alive like right. you need it like
0: alive. literally
1: literally right um, this doesn't mean they're addicted to insulin right it means they're dependent on insulin um, I am dependent on my psych meds. Mm -hmm. I'm not addicted to my psych meds. I'm dependent on my medical marijuana. I'm not addicted to my medical marijuana. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And like, you can tell the difference. The difference Mm.
1: exists. Right. I was addicted to Xanax. Mm. I was also dependent on it. Mm. It's a dependence it turned into an addiction because of several different factors. Yeah. A, I have a little bit of an addictive personality. B, I became addicted to them because I started using them in an addictive way, which I guess that doesn't really make much sense. I I became addicted to Xanax essentially because I started using them to change the way that I was feeling. Right.
0: And that's, that's like... The difference between, say, unaddressed emotional pain or trauma or distress and maybe physical, although that line is also so difficult to parse out.
1: Yeah, it can definitely be. I mean, there's so much that like goes into addiction and there's so much that goes in. And there's not a lot that goes into being dependent on something. Mm-hmm. we dependent on food. Yes. we dependent on water. We're yes. dependent on air. Doesn't mean we're addicted to it, and there's definitely people that are addicted to food. Yeah, yeah. And they, they're, they they're, they're like, you know, I've eaten my meal for the morning, and then they continue to eat when their body doesn't need any more food. That's being addicted to food. Well, it's like so- using
0: anything as a numbing agent, as a way, gosh, this is so hard to, <laughs> as a way to escape, kind of. But when you have
1: chronic pain, sometimes it can get difficult because a lot of people I think that are in chronic pain um this is where the social aspect I think comes in yeah my opinion I think this is where the social aspect comes in and where the social aspect becomes really important because and this is why I think every my personal opinion I think every single person who has chronic pain has to have really needs is very important and needs to have a therapist an individual therapist and it's very important that they have a support system, whether it consists of friends, family, online, in person it would be much better, it's much healthier to be able, online is important. Um, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. It's really important to have that social factor of even if it's just one human being that you can turn to that you can talk to, that you can go out with, and that you can do things that are unrelated to chronic illness. Yeah, and like able to accommodate it at the mm -hmm. same time. Yeah, I went out Thursday night after I got my test results. Instead of going to an AA meeting, which is what I normally do, I went out Thursday night with one of my best friends to a concert, which was difficult for me to do. It hurt. I was in a lot of pain, um, but we had a a really nice time. And I needed to do things like that because – it fills your spirit,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, it fills your spirit, it fills your soul, and it gives you something, um, it, it, it gives you back pieces of your life yeah. that the illness has taken away from you.
2: Totally. And
1: that's really important to have so that you continue to feel like a full and whole human being and so you don't start to feel like I'm just a sick person. Yes. I'm nodding so enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people get really lost in just being sick, and then they never, can se- they never have an idea or a hope of what it might be like to feel healthy again. And so then they stop even chasing or looking or investigating into how to get healthy. Mm-hmm stop even looking for avenues of how to get healthy. And they just stay in the sickness. Yeah. And it's such a hard line. I
0: think about this all the time. I still feel like I don't have good words for it, but it's such a hard line of like, you can become so focused on trying to like get better in quotes, which maybe isn't possible. It might not be possible to become the exact same level of health as you were before. And so chasing that if, if you're so focused on that that you lose track of the rest of your life, then I think that that can be really damaging. And then at right. the same time, like, I think that acceptance is really important of where your body's at. Um, but acceptance can also, like, very quickly turn into giving up, which is kind of what you're describing, of, like, giving yeah. up on the world around you and, make, yeah. and making an impact or whatever it is that drives you.
1: I think there just needs to be a balance. Like, when I, I can just use myself as an example. When I found out that I was, when I got diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, that day, October 31st of 2018, I really felt like there's no way that I have this. There's just no way. I am not going to accept that I have this diagnosis until I have exhausted every single avenue to disprove that this is what I have. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, though, I'll kind of accept that I have this and I'll adjust my life to the symptoms that I'm experiencing, but I'm not going to accept the diagnosis itself because I don't believe that's what I have in my gut. Mm -hmm. Like inside of my, you know, inside me, it's not what I feel like I have. So I'm going to sit here and just lay down and be like, this is what I have and this is just my life. It's over now over now and let me just be another person who sits here and says, well, I don't know. I'm I'm going along with the IC diet and my symptoms aren't changing. And I'm just going to continue to complain about just that for the next 10 years. Right. But a lot of people do and I don't understand it.
0: Yeah. It does not work for you.
1: No, it just doesn't work for me. So I just didn't do that. I was like, nope, sorry. I'm on a mission to find my root cause and yeah, you guys can watch me do it if you want on my YouTube channel, and maybe you'll learn something about you know as I'm learning stuff. Yeah, you can continue to just be where you're at. It all takes time. I'm like that's totally fine, but I've managed to because I've been very, very persistent, because I'm very stubborn <laughs> um, and really determined to figure out that I have you know to find out that I have a pelvic floor dysfunction. I have these bulging discs. I have this compressed d- root nerve.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the hormone stuff. In, and like the hormone,
1: the perfect like, storm. So far there's those things, and those are the actual root causes. Yeah, that, actually, those are the diagnoses, not interstitial cystitis. Yeah, and that's painful, That's closer to painful bladder syndrome. And there's so many people that have gotten misdiagnosed so many people. I get so many phone calls from women that ask me for help now because I talk so much about the phenotypes and because I created a petition to um, to for signatures to have the phenotypes um, added to the guidelines, to the AUA guidelines when they come out with the new guidelines. They're supposed to come out with them later on this year. And I really, really want to see the IC, um, Dr. Payne's IC... PBS um, phenotypes added to the AUA guidelines. I mm-hmm. don't see any way that I see that interstitial cystitis is going to um, be changed yeah. the way that it's noticed in this country at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's super important. Um, okay. So it's about time to wrap up. Is there anything that we haven't covered yet that is like on your brain or in your notes? And it's okay if no, because we've talked about uh, a lot.
1: No, I don't really feel... I feel like I told you pretty much everything that I could think of that I wanted to tell you about anyways. That's church, great. But if that all comes down to... <laughs> if I think of something else, I guess I could just message it to you.
0: Yeah, it's, that's absolutely true if anything else comes up. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing it with me. It's For talking to me. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, it's super informative, and I think, like it is so helpful one of the reasons that i did this is cuz it's it's easy it's like you can get told something by a doctor once and think that that's the end of the story especially if you don't know anybody else's health story and i feel like the more that for me like the more that i heal- hear these stories or the more that i started looking for chronic illness stuff it was like oh this is all so much more complicated and there's so much so many more places that like i can improve my quality of life now by understanding Mm -hmm. Even if I don't have a, like, complete diagnosis that explains everything, even if I don't, like, love my doctor at a given moment, that's not the whole story at all, you know? Yeah, not
1: at all. When it comes to intersocial cystitis, there's so much more that is that you have to look at. You have to look at your hormones. You have to look at your spine. You have to look at your um, your your pelvic floor. You need to look at your nerve sy- your central nervous system. Um, you have to look at those things. And if you don't, you are just going to be missing little pieces of the puzzle.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm
1: just going to be missing pieces of the puzzle. And you're going to sit there and you're going to be in a lot of pain until you start to look at all those different pieces.
0: Thank you for listening to episode 37 of No End in Sight. You can find Libby on Instagram and Facebook at the.intuitive.advocate. And you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at B. You can find this show on Instagram at no.n.in.site.pod. I'm still slow on posts because I'm still behind on transcripts, but that will pick up again as soon as those picks up again, pick up again, which should be soon. I am working just slowly. Next week, I'll be talking to a woman who's been diagnosed with fibro, ME, and chronic migraine. So make sure you subscribe in your podcast app to find out when that story comes out. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I love to cross-stitch as a way to feel productive during flares when I'm stranded in front of the television. One of these days, I'm going to get some new spring and summer patterns out, but there's some great green ones and uh, orange ones right now, so I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.